Hey there, it's Alex Pearson from On Point. Today on the podcast, we speak with an activist and professor in Beirut about why it's so essential that the money we give in aid to Lebanon stays out of the hands of the warlords and terrorists. We'll talk about an incredible case where the Saudi crown prince sent a hit squad to Canada to take out a person they believe has very damaging information on them. It's unbelievable. And here we go again. Donald Trump leveling tariffs against Canada for our aluminum, something they need and we have an abundance of. But can he do that? Good to have you back with us. You know, Beirut is begging for help and the world is ready to help, to be very generous in fact. But where the aid goes is crucial because before this disaster, Lebanon was a country on the cusp of economic collapse. You know, they're dealing with record unemployment, food shortages, electrical shortages, there have been mass political protests, uh, you know, fighting political corruption, dominated by incompetent, greedy warlords and Hezbollah, which has led to a real despair. And they're also dealing with a Syrian refugee crisis. And then you add in the coronavirus and now an explosion that has killed 135 people, at least injured uh, over 10,000 and left to the numbers that we have now, 300,000 homeless. So, yes, the world needs to help, but it's where that money goes that makes sure that they can actually recover. I want to uh, bring in Carmen Giha, who's an associate professor of public administration, and she is in Lebanon and joins us. Good to have you, Professor. Thank you very much. What is the situation right now, if you can characterize that? I just want to say that I'm very heartened by your question and by the uh, scrutiny that the international community is beginning to apply. Uh, after decades uh, of the civil war, the international community continued to provide aid and technical assistance to the same people that put 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrates and used our bodies and our shops as human shields. The situation is like a movie from, from an apocalyptic movie. I mean, I can't even tell you. It's, it's, it's blood, it's glass everywhere, it's anger, it's a coronavirus. I mean, I can't even tell you. It's, I think the pictures speak a lot, but I mean, just being there, the city smells of blood and glass, if that makes sense, and rage, a lot of rage. Yeah, you know, you see these images from a world away and we are insulated from the true pain and despair and fear and I would think a lot of anger that has, uh, it was already cultivated before this. And, and where is it now? I mean, obviously blame is going to be placed. And, and from, from just looking outside in, I wonder how on earth could a government leave that much explosive power so recklessly right beside a fireworks uh, warehouse? It, none of it makes sense. And they knew from 2014 that these shipments came in. I mean, the official excuse that they're giving is not even imaginable. I mean, if this is the narrative they want to go with, this is the story they want to tell, it makes them look really, really bad. And if this is their public story, I wonder what is it, what is it that they're not telling us. Um, I think people need to help. I think we need to stand on our own two feet, two feet. Again, we need every bit of aid. It should go to charities, social institutions. But if the world also wants to help, they need to help us get rid of this government. We are held hostage by these people and no one deserves to live in this way. It's, it's, regimes have been toppled for much less than what they did to us, much less. Let me let me start with your comment on, on the narrative of, of what they're telling the world. Um, is that your belief that, that this is made up? I mean, do you believe something else happened here? Is it possible that Hezbollah possibly, you know, lit something hoping that this would explode? Or what do you believe happened? What do the people of Lebanon think happened? 
there are many plausible scenarios and many plausible stories. And in an age of social media, some people say they saw a rocket. Uh, I, I saw a video with, with what looked like drones. Other people say, you know, it probably it, it wasn't an Israeli attack, but that's not what they're telling us. Was it an inside job? But the truth is, and the real story here right now is what you were saying, is why are they storing this material near our shops and our homes and our kids and our workers? This was the first day back to work, peak time, 6 p.m. Everybody's like we were on lockdown for a few days. It was the first day out, very busy streets, busy bars that are already reeling from economic collapse. And people have no faith in whatever they say or do. This is a, a group of politicians that have failed to pick up the trash we don't have electricity in Lebanon because there's 40 billion in fuel for the electricity sector that we don't know where they went. So whatever they say, whatever they investigate, whatever they decide to do, no one has any faith in them. So if you want to help Lebanon, help through aid, sponsor a home, a family. I mean, even the fixing a door costs like $300. And there are 300, 400,000 homes that need doors. Help with that, but also help us topple them. And they need right. to be brought to justice. And people want revenge. That's the mood. In, in, you know, making it, because people will want to donate, it's, in other words, give to places like the Red Cross, an international, um, you know, well-known organization. Otherwise, the money itself will go to these warlords, uh, terrorists, and it will not get to the people in need. Absolutely. And this has happened before. There are, you know, there are a lot of committees and, and development funds that were set up uh, after several crises, the 2006 war, even after the Lebanese war, and none of them contributed anything. And it's easy. The thing is, it's easy to help because the destruction is so much. I can't begin to, you can help with anything. You know, you can send glass, you can send money, you can, you know, sponsor somebody's hospital bill. You don't need to be giving legitimacy political to these people or giving them money that we're never going to see. The day before this blast happened, Lebanon's foreign minister resigned, warning that Lebanon was the verge of becoming a failed state. Does this uh, particular event uh, seal that fate? And and do you see, um, you know, there were po political uprisings before this. Where do you see this going? Yeah, so I I, I mean, the, the protest, the revolution, I think was very clear in indicting them and saying that we want justice. But the thing is, like, after financial collapse, when you lose, when your salary becomes at one tenth what it was and then the pandemic. So I think, you know, people were still trying to organize. We're still trying to, you know, come up with alternatives. But right now the failed, the fate is sealed. We are in a failed state. We are more than in a, in a criminal state. They assassinated a group of firefighters and sent them back to put off the fire. And then the bomb went off. They sent 25-year-old kids to die. So it's not a failed state. It's a regime that's killing us. The world can watch and then we turn into another Afghanistan, Syria, you know, Yemen, however you want to see it. But right now, the tipping point that we're at is removing legitimacy from these people. Help the Lebanese people stand back on their feet. Sponsor someone's hospital bill. Help someone buy a door. That's where we're at. Yes, it's a failed state. The way you say to, to um, you know, start growing uh, success is, is to topple those in charge. But who in the world right now could do that? The United Nations is hardly... Uh, showing itself to be a fighter and defender um, of nations like uh, Lebanon. Um, you know, I don't know who could lead that charge. Who would it be? Yeah, I understand. And I know, as I say this out loud, that the history of the world is a, is a history that where bad people win and powerful people win and people with weapons win. I, I can promise you this. We will not 
ever elect them again and we will avenge the city. But now, for now, international agencies, the UN, whoever can spare a dime, individuals should help us get back on our feet. But I'm, I'm promising from this show that we'll, we'll figure out a way to topple them. And people are even willing you know, to go really far in this. But first, we need to stand on our own two feet. Absolutely. I mean, the devastation, we're talking $15 billion, which is 10 times the city of Toronto's budget. Um, it is an enormous, enormous cost to, to rebuild and not just the cost, it's going to take decades. Yeah, and we're still counting bodies, by the way. So we still don't have a final toll. There are tens of people's pictures going around. People are missing loved ones. So it's almost 48, it's 48 hours and we still didn't, we, we we didn't pick up the bodies. I mean, it's something unimaginable. It is so unimaginable, and uh, we feel safe watching on the other side of the world, but um, it is a time to act. Do you believe that this is a, a turning point, or it could be a turning point? Because you know the headlines will fade, the world will start watching something else. So if change doesn't happen now, is it going to fail? It has to be a turning point. This is the last uh, chance. Otherwise, uh, we're going to die one way or another, or everybody's going to emigrate, or whoever can emigrate will emigrate. It has to be a turning point. And that's up to us, and, I, and, I, and we will do this. But right now, no, we can't become another story. 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate getting bombed in the middle of the day cannot be a story that people check. Anyone who's watching, sponsor someone's hospital bill, help us put a door back up, and then we will revenge our own our own politicians. Professor, I thank you so much for your time. I know it's late there and I know you're very busy, but I appreciate you joining us and getting- I appreciate you telling the story. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've got a very big Lebanese community in um, in Canada. So no question, they will want to help. And, uh, and you heard the best way you can help. Just don't hand money over to anybody. Make sure it goes to a reputable organization who can actually help the people of Lebanon and not go to the bad actors in that country. Well, what is a tiger squad? That's my question. And why did Saudi Arabia send one to Canada? Toronto, actually, to be specific. And this story is just wild. Uh, so kudos to the Globe and Mail for reporting these stunning details um, that reveal shortly after journalist Jamal Khashoggi was killed and then dismembered, the Crown Prince then dispatched this specially trained hit squad to kill a 61-year-old who once held a very serious and senior intelligence post under deposed uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Nayaf. And he's been keeping a low profile under private security here in Toronto since 2017. And court documents were filed which reveal that this man apparently has very damning information, including recordings that he kept in case he was killed. And that would include vast counterterrorism experience and deep knowledge of some of Saudi Arabia's most sensitive information, including things like foreign bank accounts, financial assets of senior Saudi royal family members, people like the prince. So that info, of course, also would have included help uh, to solve the killing of Mr. Khashoggi. So many details to this story. Let's bring in uh, Christian Luprecht, a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He's also a senior fellow over at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And I sent you this story, Christian, because it's just so confounding. I mean, the guy's name is Saeed Al-Jabre, and, and, you know, he's been under protection here since 2017, um, credited with saving thousands of American lives because he, he provided key intel that would prevent a terrorist plot targeting synagogues in Chicago. He lays out these court filings, and it just is giving stunning detail. Why would he do that? 
Yeah, so look, I mean, he's, uh, Saudi Arabia is probably as close as we get in the modern day to an absolute monarchy. And intelligence chiefs, especially so in authoritarian regimes, tend to have a very symbiotic relationship with whoever the authoritarian ruler is. And so when the ruler changes, so usually does the leadership of the intelligence community. And that usually then puts your life in jeopardy because... Um, as the intelligence chiefs, there's a lot of things you know, especially a lot of dirty things that uh, you would prefer the rest of the world not to know. And so uh, I suspect that uh, he realized that his, na- his days were probably numbered. Um, and so he wanted to provide, I think, some, uh, some assurance for himself and his family um, and had already built clearly close links with intelligence agencies in the West. And it seems that the strategy that he has taken, I think, as a route to personal survival, uh, these individuals tend to do one of two things. They tend to go underground, never to be seen or heard from again. But I think he fears that the Saudi intelligence system is so effective that they would find him. And so he's chosen the opposite strategy, which is to be very prominent and even to go so far um, as filing a civil suit as a way to keep the pressure up on the Saudi regime. Because, of course, the more he talks about the Saudis, and the more he uh, takes this to court and then has the evidence effectively validated uh, by the judicial system in the United States and possibly uh, impose civil penalties, uh, the more he's able to draw attention to the Saudi regime. And I think he feels that um, uh, drawing attention Mm -hmm. to himself is the best way to keep himself alive, because if there's a, a spotlight on him, it'll make it all the more difficult for the Saudis to take him out, because everybody would know who's taken him out or who's taken out members of his family. So I think this is basically a survival strategy for him and his family. Right. He went to the United States and then they started looking for him there. He came to Canada and uh, he's pretty convinced they're going to come after him again. And so would he have had to have negotiated uh, some kind of protection with Canada, um, you know, and strike a deal with the government? So uh, chances are that um, the intelligence services all have links with one another. And I mean, especially in the counterterrorism world, for better or for worse, um, Saudi Arabia is also a partner um, in, in, in the counterterrorism effort. And so he would have already had those relationships. And I think he probably cut a deal where uh, he provided certain information to uh, U.S. intelligence in return for them providing them some sense of protection. And, and my guess is both between his own assessment of uh, Khashoggi, um, but also the U.S. assessment, there was probably a, a sense that they were no longer able to provide for his security uh, in the U.S., um, inherently, Canada has fewer ties to Saudi Arabia. It has fewer Saudi citizens. Um, and it also becomes then more obvious when, for instance, Saudi hit squads try to enter the country. And clearly, in this particular case, we have a situation where uh, the Saudis, uh, that hypothesis paid off because the Saudis, we now know, apparently did try uh, to come to Canada. And it looks like that. Now, Kenyan authorities say that CBSA became suspicious, but my best guess is probably that they were tracking one or more of these individuals uh, and that CBSA got a tip to pull them aside. And so I think uh, the U.S. and Canada probably got together and said, look, we could prosecute these individuals, but we don't want to unnecessarily uh, embarrass the Saudi regime. But we want to send a clear signal that you're not going to take out people to whom we've granted protection on our sovereign soil. 
Right. I mean, maybe it was the fact that they were carrying a bag of forensic tools um, used to clean up crime scenes. I mean, that might have been one tip off. Like, why do you have a saw? Why do you have a like all these rags? Um, but they are embarrassed now. Um, I mean, the bottom line is now everybody I mean, the United States, it's this story has now gone all over the, the world. Um and this man still has two children that remain in Saudi Arabia. So would there be, I guess, uh, retribution? Would those children be used? Yeah, I think so. I think his strategy is sort of a uh, increasing the pain on the Saudi regime. So the more the Saudis try to come after him, uh, the more he's, I think, prepared to draw attention to the crown prince uh, and to the dealings of Saudi intelligence. So it's sort of a, uh, uh, a, a, a tit-for-tat effort. And uh, uh, certainly, I think his family members, he knew that his family members would become targets, which is why he quietly tried to ferry, um, I guess, six from what we know publicly, six out of eight of his children uh, outside of Saudi Arabia because, uh, and, and it seems that the regime is, is using family for leverage, at least by the public accounts that we have. And that would also be uh, in keeping with the way authoritarian regimes tend to try to impose pressure on, uh, on family members that are abroad in order to get the outcomes that they uh, wish. And so, I mean, there's also immense personal tragedy, and it was always clear to him that there was going to be a heavy toll and a heavy cost. Uh, right. to his decision to uh, to defect effectively. Jeez. Well, now, as you well know, there's, there was a $15 billion arms deal signed under the Harper government, and these are arms built in London, Ontario. Um, Justin Trudeau played politics with this and said he'd uh, review it and can cancel it, and then that really didn't happen because then there was an election and he needed to win ridings in London. And so not only did this deal not get cancelled, but then the government, they added $2 billion in new business. And Mercedes Stevenson took this question to Bill Blair, asked, you know, do you know about this case? And he won't call comment on the case, but he is aware of it. So then the question, Christian, becomes, did this government know about this, you know, Saeed Algebra? And did he know that Canada was protecting him? Did they know the details of this? And then did they give Saudi Arabia more money? I mean, because that is not just shady. Uh, you know, that's got to be held to account. Well, if he's being granted protection here, I mean, certainly this was this would be a case that CSIS would have likely briefed um, uh, the government on, and, uh, and the government be, would be uh, would be aware of. At the same time, I think when it comes to the arms deal um, in international relations, there's something called linkage. And mm. uh, as a professional government, you try to avoid linkage at all costs. That is to say, you try to deal with separate issues and separate cases separately. And so just like we don't want the United States linking, for instance, um, uh, 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 negotiations on softwood lumber to negotiations on uh, aluminum tariffs, um, we don't want to be linking um, our intelligence differences with the Saudi regime uh, to our arms deals because it becomes impossible then to negotiate rational and sensible deals when everybody in the world starts to link everything to uh, to, to various issues. And so I think it is prudent and is, is appropriate for Canada to make sure we try to keep these issues separate because authoritarian yeah. regimes will do exactly that. They will try to confound the different issues in the same way that they would try to impose leverage, for instance, on him through his family, they would try to impose leverage on Canada by linking one issue that has nothing to do with another issue. And uh, that's simply not how in a modern 21st century globalized world we can actually do effective business uh, as a country. And so um, as 
uh, as odd as that might sound to many listeners, it's, I think it's actually important that we keep these deals separate and we evaluate each of these issues on their own merits rather than trying to throw them all together. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, kind of an art of war a situation, because sadly, uh, Saudi Arabia is a terror regime. However, in the Middle East, uh, you know, we kind of need them to do, you know, take care of situations in the Middle East against others like Iran and, and, and all the rest of it. What a mess. Nonetheless, uh, what a fascinating headline. We'll see where it takes us. But uh, Krishna, I really appreciate your insight into this. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Christian Luprecht joining us uh, here tonight. It's just fa- It's fascinating. I don't know where it goes from here. The guy's still got a fatwa on his head. You can only imagine how stressful his life is, eh? Jeez, oh, jeez. Canada was taking advantage of us, as usual. And I signed it, and it imposes because the aluminum business was being decimated by Canada. Very unfair to our jobs and our great aluminum workers. Seven months ago, my administration agreed to lift those tariffs in return for a promise from the Canadian government that its aluminum industry would not flood our country with exports and kill all our aluminum jobs, which is exactly what they did. Yeah, we're taking advantage of them again. That's what we do here in Canada. You know, we're like a puppy that's been kicked. <laughs> and, and sure, kick us when your political life hangs by a thread. I mean, I think that's the only reason that Donald Trump would do this, impose a 10% aluminum tariff against our aluminum. Uh, You know, we're rich with this stuff, and the United States needs it. But, you know, thanks to the pandemic being out of control in that country, demand for it has dropped. And now he's claiming that we're taking advantage of the U.S. by flooding the market with it. He can do it. He should not. Let's bring in Bruce Heyman. He might know a thing or two because he's a former U.S. ambassador to Canada. Good to have you, sir. Good to be here on this uh, crazy time in America. I apologize to all of my Canadian friends, and I look forward to this conversation. But uh, bottom line, it's all politics right now. The guy's behind in the polls, and he's got a pandemic with 158,000 people that are dead in America and an economy that's giving him trouble and racism and all these issues. And he's trying to reboot a campaign with less than 90 days to go. And He's going back to his old playbook back in 2016, and unfortunately, Canada's taken the brunt of it today. Yeah, you know, I barely talk about Donald Trump, barely, and I do it specifically because it is such a hard topic to talk about because people lose their minds either which way. It doesn't matter what you say about him, you're going to get inundated with hundreds of emails. And so mm-hmm. I barely talk about mm-hmm. him, but what I, I will talk about him when, when he kicks our country and puts us at risk. Um, you know, we have a product. We make product. We're an ethical partner, trading partner. We've got a free trade agreement with with the United States. And so we do business with them. There is absolutely no sense to doing this because ultimately, is he not hurting America more than 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 Canada? I mean, he will hurt us, but more, more so America. Self-inflicted wounds are his specialty. And I talked about a pandemic. Now, look, 25% of the deaths in the world from this pandemic go to the United States, and we only have 4% of the world's population. So regardless of what anybody thinks, he didn't create the darn thing, but boy, he sure didn't manage it. And that's why our shared border is closed to non-essential travel. So now he's doing this self-inflicting wound again. Now he has a path of doing this with Canada from the very beginning of his administration. He came at you for steel aluminum tariffs once before. He threatened your auto industry if you didn't come his way on a Mm -hmm. trade agreement. He used 
really harsh language against the prime minister and then foreign minister, now deputy prime minister of Canada. He threatened potentially to put troops at the border. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And holding holding back an N95 mask. So now he's now coming back to the, the aluminum. And he said Canada takes advantage of, of us like the others. This is ridiculous. Canada is our best friend, our greatest ally, our best trading partner. And I say best because it's balanced trade and we share goods and services with each other. And we're family. There, how many, you know, look, we all know a lot of Americans live in Canada and a lot of Canadians live in the U.S. Our relationship is not defined by Donald Trump. And uh, for me, as the former U.S. ambassador under Obama, I'm now working hard on the Biden campaign. But in, it, but in all reality, I think that he is inflicting damage to a lot of our allies around the world. And today's Canada again. And it's just sickening. Well, I've got family there. My sister lives there. My dad was American. So, I mean, I, I mean, th- those those ties will always remain and the relationship will always remain. And, um, you know, this is one chapter. But the bottom line is um, the world is hurting uh, Canada and the United States. No matter, you know, who handles the pandemic, worse or better, we're all going to pay the price. And so my concern is yeah. long term, um, you know, the price our, our aluminum, um, you know, manufacturers will, in fact, be inflicted upon. Totally agree with you. I mean, you and I are on the same page here. And the, the reality is, and look, what people don't realize is we have a beer can shortage, aluminum mm-hmm. beer can shortage in the United States. And we are now raising prices because of that shortage without this. Now we're going to add 10% tariffs. Who do you think is going to pay those tariffs? You know, he's going to run around and say Canada's going to pay the tariffs. No, that's going to all just get passed on. And it's going to get passed on to the American consumer. So at the end of the day, you know, average Americans are going to be paying for this, just like they did every other tariff we put on. But it was very obvious in listening to that clip that it was a campaign stop. I mean, it was playing to a particular crowd. So that does work, and he will get a reaction out of it. But there's not really much that uh, Justin Trudeau can do. I mean, uh, you know, you've got an election coming up, and what do you do? Do you poke the bear uh, or just let, let, let let it sleep kind of the way it is now? That's a tough choice that the prime minister has. Because on one hand, if he doesn't respond at all, the Canadian public is going to say, hey, how do you let Donald Trump take advantage of you? On the other hand, if he gets into a tit-for-tat with Donald Trump, that's exactly what Donald Trump wants. Because he wants to demonstrate, yay, I'm big and strong against Canada's taking advantage of us. And so so it's a, it, it's a needle that the prime minister is going to have to thread here. And he's going to have to balance domestic and international policy all at the same time. And... You know, this has been rumored now for weeks, so there's a clear yeah. reason that, that the prime minister didn't come to, quote-unquote, celebrate this new NAFTA, especially as this anvil was hanging over the head of Canada. And uh, But, I, look, from my sources, this was a debate in the White House, and the key economic people advising the president were advising against it, and the political people were like, let's go for it. So yeah. you can see who's well, on this. Yeah, I'm up against the clock, uh, Bruce, but I appreciate you joining us. But you know who will comment on it? And I'll put money on it right now. Doug Ford will comment on it, and he will not needle a threat. I have a feeling tomorrow he will uh, be pretty blunt about it because um, he can be. I appreciate your time on this. Pleasure. Be well, everyone. That is Bruce Heyman, former U.S. ambassador to Canada. And I'll, I will put money on it. Doug Ford will not hold back tomorrow because, uh, you know, his economy being hurt, he'll speak out. 
That's your podcast for today. Don't forget, you can catch us on Point Live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.